0: You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemaineradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: The overall economy has produced lots of these early stage companies and now part of the challenge is how do we get a whole bunch of these companies that maybe haven't broken through a million dollars a year to really start scaling up.
2: What we like to say is that when women thrive, society thrives. Women are integral to the family, they are integral to our community. This
3: is Dr. Lisa Belisle and you are listening to Love, Main Radio, show number 250. Inspirational Mainers, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 3rd, 2016. For the past several years, Maine Magazine has identified 50 Mainers who are making important contributions to the well-being of our state. Today we speak with two people from the 2016 list, Don Gooding and Eliza Townsend. Don Gooding is the former Executive Director of the Maine Center for Entrepreneurial Development. And Eliza Townsend is the Executive Director of the Maine Women's Lobby. Thank you for joining
0: us. Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award A strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information.
3: Today I have with me Don Gooding. Don Gooding has been the executive director of the Maine Center for Entrepreneurial Development since October 2010, and is host of the Saturday evening television show, Green Light Maine. He served as vice chair of the Maine Angels for four years and has taught or spoken about innovation and entrepreneurship at seven Maine colleges. Previously, he was a telecommunications market analyst and venture capitalist for 16 years then founded and ran a global acapella music business for 16 years based out of Southwest Harbor. The Gooding Cups are now given out at the big college and high school acapella competitions, the real world events on which the movie Pitch Perfect is based. Thanks for coming in today.
1: Thanks for having me.
3: I enjoy talking to uh, fellow singers, although I think you took your music to a slightly um, bigger level than mine because I, You know, a cappella is something that you really have to have a love for to keep investing in.
1: Yes, I I started singing at a very young age, had some extraordinary experiences going to Hungary, of all places, and then followed my older sister to Yale because of all the a cappella singing there. And managed to get in my senior year into the original college a cappella group, the Yale Whiffenpoofs. Poofs, toured around. And, you know, in my adult life, I've sung with or directed a bunch of a cappella groups. So, yeah, it's been with me for most of my life.
3: And you also have this sort of dual thing that this, uh, you were a telecommunications market analyst, and you are very much involved in entrepreneurship, so it seems as if kind of communications, expression, self-expression, helping other people's express themselves, it seems like that's been kind of an important theme for you.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I've never really thought about it that way. Uh, A lot of my telecom uh, career was really in the technology. So, uh, for example, when the internet was just being commercialized, I was the techie that went in and tried to understand that this was going to be a very big opportunity. But of course, as it's turned out, uh, the internet has become a huge form of expression. So I guess when I, I handcrafted the first venture capital website in the very early days, but that, yes, that was a form of uh, expression. And of course, now I've moved from acapella to singing Sinatra, and of course, expressing the lyrics is important. So yeah, and then I spend a fair amount of my time now working with entrepreneurs on their pitches and on their communication style, so yeah, I guess I have worked a fair amount of that.
3: And you also have this television program that you are involved in, Greenlight Maine.
1: Yes, so Greenlight Maine just started uh, a year ago. It was the idea of a guy, uh, Con Fulham, trying to bring a show that would. Um, demonstrates to Maine that there are all sorts of really exciting companies here that are achieving some success uh, and trying to show that entrepreneurship uh, is really important to Maine going forward. So we are getting close now to wrapping up the first season. Um, Uh, Anybody who wants to see the exciting finals where $100,000 is on the line, June 24th, we're actually going to be at Merrill Auditorium. uh, And it's pretty exciting to see these companies and the progress that they've been able to make in just a year.
3: You've done a lot of work with what is now called Top Gun Mean. Correct. This is something that some people may not be familiar with. Tell us about that.
1: Sure. Um, In the world of entrepreneurship, there are these things called accelerators and Top Gun, which was started by my predecessor, excuse me, at the Maine Center for Entrepreneurial Development, uh, is Maine's version of that. So we bring together classes of entrepreneurs over a short period of time, typically three to five months. And that peer group does a lot of uh, self-coaching, but then we also surround them with mentors. These are people who have had real world experience with all the challenges from doing marketing and sales and hiring people. And manufacturing and financing to help these mostly first time entrepreneurs to really accelerate their progress uh, now all of, a bunch of these are high risk businesses they 're all trying to grow uh, on the main scale to be you know way above average. And of course, with that kind of risk, not all of them succeed, but many of them are achieving those successes, and it's, it's very exciting to see. So it started in 2009 with just a dozen entrepreneurs in this yearly program in Portland, and now we have about 25 companies in Portland, Orono, and Rockland. And it's a wide variety of businesses. Uh, a bunch of them have not yet started selling products or services to customers, but uh, some of them have already. Uh, And the industries range from uh, software, which is something you think about for these kind of businesses, but also uh, new categories of uh, wine, like we've got a rhubarb wine company and we have a concierge yachting service and uh, cosmetics with seaweed. So all sorts of interesting ideas that Maine entrepreneurs have that if they're successful can really have a big impact on the Maine economy.
3: Why is it important to have entrepreneurs in Maine?
1: Well, we've always had them. Maine is actually historically a very entrepreneurial state and it's really important in any economy because uh, especially today when the world is changing so much, entrepreneurs are the people who look at the changing world and figure out what the future might look like and then go try to make that happen. So here in Maine, especially now, where we're looking at a lot of historic industries that are not doing well, we have to reinvent our economy. And entrepreneurs, rather than government or other kinds of folks, are the people who are best attuned to to figuring out what needs to be done. So I think for the main economy to succeed in the future, we need lots more people to say... um, I'm going to take that risk I'm going to try to do something that can be sold not only locally but regionally nationally and internationally because that's really how the state as a whole is going to prosper going forward I kind of sound like a politician which is not a good thing but yet, it's it's part of what drives me um, I actually got into this originally because I've got two daughters myself and You know there's a lot of concern about the US having been the leading economy for so many decades might go into a state of decline and to me the essential thing is that we always have to reinvent ourselves uh, as an economy as a country personally and entrepreneurship and innovation is really the path to that uh, reinvention
3: we often think about um, as entrepreneurs, we often think about people as taking enormous risks and leaving their homes and their jobs and just jumping into the next thing. But what seems to work well is is actually kind of keeping a foot in something that gives you some economic stability, say, I don't know, working as a doctor, let's just say. Mm-hmm. But then also adding on that that next thing. And, and we've seen this a lot. Um, yes. People coming onto the radio show who – They keep their, quote, day job while they're becoming entrepreneurs. So why do you think it is that we have this idea that it's all so easy that we just jump from one thing to the next?
1: So uh, I I think a lot of these new ideas need some gestation period. And so it's okay to have the, the moonlight business or, in some cases, inside a company. It's a skunkworks project or some side project that people are doing just because they're passionate about it and it takes a while for all of those pieces to come from this kind of vague idea to some coherent whole so sometimes you can make that big jump, but most people aren't in the situation personally and financially to be able to make that big leap without jeopardizing a whole bunch of things that they've uh, they've started. So in Top Gun, in particular, we see a number of moonlight entrepreneurs uh, because as they look out, they say, well, there's a bunch of things we have to figure out. It sounds like it'll be good in the future but you know yeah let's just take a little while test some things on the side uh before they they take the big leap um and then you know there are people like me who just you know i i'm taking a big leap now although i have to say that when i started my acapella business it was in the spare bedroom while i was still doing venture capital and I had about a four-year period where the two were overlapping. So it's, it's pretty common to be doing it that way.
3: You are going to be taking another big leap because you will be stepping down as the executive director for, of the main Center for Entrepreneurial Development as of June.
1: Yes, yes, um, it, I've been there for five and a half years. Uh, Maine has come an awfully long way, and MCED, the organization, has also come a long way. And I've learned about myself that I'm very much a startup guy. My license plate even says startup. Um, And the Top Gun program in particular, we're now in our seventh year, and we actually have somebody on our staff, Susan Rulin, who's the program manager, and it's running like a more mature business. And in addition, the overall economy has produced lots of these early stage companies, and now part of the challenge is, how do we get a whole bunch of these companies that maybe haven't broken through a million dollars a year to really start scaling up? And I've never done that myself and so I think it's a time for some new people to come in and take the organization to the next level it having been through this process a bunch of times and seeing other people do it I you know I can say intellectually yes it's there's often a time where the founder uh, says it's time to step aside and I kind of looked in the mirror and said, you know what, I I think it's that time for me right now. So yes, I've taken the big leap and still haven't quite figured out all of the different pieces. But uh, I'm aspiring not to run anything, but uh, to try to spend some more time with a few companies. I, I really enjoy helping entrepreneurs and being able to focus on a small number rather than the 200 companies a year that we see coming through MCED. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm looking forward to potentially working with some uh, college students uh, and that very startup phase. There's an awful lot of uh, college entrepreneurship going on in Maine right now, which is very exciting. Uh, And who knows, maybe even write a book. And of course, sing some more.
3: Well I hope you're I hope you're going to sing some more cuz that's the kind of the important thing. This is this is how you started your your long life and we have to keep doing it.
1: Absolutely. It's essential and you know, it's, it's part of the work-life balance that lots of people struggle with. So I haven't been singing regularly in about eight or nine years uh, since I was up on Mount Desert Island, and my a cappella group that I'd started there broke up. So I've been working on the Sinatra repertoire for a while, so, so there will be no more excuses that I have to go do some entrepreneur thing to help grow the main economy it's it's got got to find a venue so so if any of you know a venue that needs a Sinatra singer let me know
3: Okay, so the the word is out now. (laughs) You're going to be booked solid. As soon as you are done doing your MCED work, you'll be singing.
1: Uh, That's my hope. Actually, I I have a fun gig coming up. Cellar Door Winery uh, is going to be opening up in Portland, and my wife, who writes cookbooks, uh, she's done a number of tastings and up in their Lincolnville facility where, you know, I've sung Sinatra while she does a tasting of like, you know, uh, Beaver Bourguignon with their uh, Pinot Noirs. So we'll be doing some of that.
3: I'm interested in this idea that, you know, some people are startup people and then some people have a different sort of energy and maybe they're more like mature phase people and i'm also interested in the idea that like a person an organization kind of has a has a developmental curve because it- I think sometimes we get in our minds well I should be good at everything right as a person I should be good at everything my organization should be good at everything but that's just that doesn't make sense
1: no it doesn't yeah we've all developed our own specialties over time and you know our brains especially at my age you know there's there's a certain way it works and prefers to work and certainly as you look at companies uh, it, it, there's a lot of literature talking about the different functions. So I happen to be on the, the visionary side, but then there's a need for process people. Uh, there's a need for people who are more the sales marketing people. Uh, there's a need for people who more are on the numbers and financing side. So all of those functions are necessary and frankly, in, in a growing business, there's not enough time for anybody to be actually doing all of them. Uh, there, uh, Fletcher Kittridge, a great entrepreneur in Maine, who's on my board of directors, likes to say that liberal arts is great training for being an entrepreneur because you have to know a little bit about a lot of different things. And as a company grows, it's just unrealistic to think you're going to be able to be an expert on all of those things. Um, So, And yes, there are also stages of development. In the early stage of a company, especially those who are trying to be innovative, you are searching for what the right fit is between this product idea you have in your head and what the market might actually want and how you actually make money and how they receive the product. So you're you're doing a lot of discovery, uh, but then once you've figured it out, then the challenge is, well, how do we do more of it? And how do we do it just a little bit better and a little bit better? And those kind of functions, which are extremely important, are qualitatively different from the discovery process. So I've certainly learned about myself that I mean, I come up with lots and lots of ideas, and I love turning at least some of those into a real new thing, um, and, and and some of them will be things that other people take and make into a much bigger thing, and I've learned that that's okay. Um, I, I'm very happy. For example, that uh, the International Championship of College cappella, which uh, actually I didn't start, I took from a very young age and worked on it for a decade. And now Amanda Newman, who we sold it to, has turned it into this huge thing. And, and I'm okay with that because she's now done it for 12 years and I've never done anything for 12 years in a row, I just get bored.
3: So, what if you are what if you are say a visionary, but you somehow find yourself in a process role as an individual like how might that manifest
1: well it's interesting i've I, I've sometimes described myself as being process challenged uh, so what I like to do is come up with new processes, but I have a hard time following them myself you know for you know hundreds of iterations uh, and so what I then need to do is f- find other people for whom that process really is something that they enjoy and then they take it and you know, they, they execute on it and then they manage it and then they make it even better. Um, so you know, I, I can invent new processes, but I, it really is other people that need to take it from there.
3: But if you're an individual who's working within a company that, you that you know, say you really love what you're doing, but it's just something that doesn't feel quite right, like how do you know that it's time to find other people to help you? Or maybe even, how do you know that it's time to move on?
1: Well... Um, I have a hundred percent history of burning out in jobs, so uh, i I recognized it sooner this time where there's a degree of frustration because uh, I want to be able to accomplish something and in some cases, it's been having responsibility but not authority to make things happen uh, at, at a junior level or, I look at a situation and the environment has such barriers and even though I'm pretty good at, you know, going around or through walls, there's sometimes that that's uh, you just don't know and you're a little overwhelmed. I mean in my case in the acapella business, I had I was selling CDs. And as we know CDs are not a thing anymore and uh, it's like, you know, I don't think I can stop this big digital music wave coming at me, and I didn't know how to overcome it. So, so it was, I knew it was time in that case for me to be moving on.
3: Well, it's, it's also interesting because then there is something called the founder effect. So what if you are, you've are you started this new business, it's a great new business, but everybody identifies this business with you, and you're trying to move out of the business. And there's a fear like, okay, so once Don Gooding is gone from his acapella business, is it going to still be able to be in existence?
1: Yes, and and it's certainly a challenge. But uh, in the case of the acapella business, having really good people working for you is critical because you know that everything's going to be just fine because the people who are good at process and who are good at taking it to the next level are already in place. Uh, and I, th- I think that's true also at MCED. You know, we have a board of directors, uh, we've got great staff who are running the programs that we have now. We- and we also have a different situation now than we had five and a half years ago of entrepreneurship in Maine so uh, I'm doing my best to make sure everybody knows that things are going to be just fine and there are lots you know everybody is replaceable it it, it, this is a hard thing for you know a lot of folks to uh, accept about themselves um, or about some you know particular company but uh, as long as the vision and a lot of the execution is solid you know, yeah, there'll be a, a, a transition time, but then people will go, Who, who was that person that was behind the company? Um, so I, I, I think these transitions aren't as hard in reality as they might be perceived at the beginning of the process.
3: Don, how can people find out about the Maine Center for Entrepreneurial Development?
1: Well, we have a website, of course, www.mced.biz. That's the best place to learn about Top Gun and all the other programs that are going on there.
3: And how can people find out once you leave? How can people find out about what you're doing?
1: Well, um, I'm I'm on Facebook a lot, so feel free to to search me out. Um, I do have a, a baby singing page, uh, Don Gooding one, I think it is. Uh, so if you're interested in that. And, I, 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 again, I don't expect that I will be disappearing, So, um, I, I, and, and I hope also that I will be able to still be meeting with entrepreneurs in coffee houses uh, across Maine.
3: We've been speaking with Don Gooding, who is the Executive Director of the Maine Center for Entrepreneurial Development and who is going to be um, leaving that post to become a, um, I guess, a Sinatra singer, book writer, um, consultant to small businesses and entrepreneurs. Um, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you, and I wish you all the best. And anybody who's listening, if you like a singer, call Don.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists, and we also host a series of monthly solo shows in our newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Eric Hopkins, Matthew Russ, Jane Damon, William Crosby, and Ruth Hamill to name a few. Please visit our website for complete show details at artcollectormaine.com.
3: I am constantly amazed by the number of people we have working with within our state doing really great things and passionately doing so. Today, I have with me Eliza Townsend, who is the executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. She represented part of Portland and the Maine House of Representatives for eight years, then moved into the nonprofit sector when she became the first executive director of the Maine League of Conservation Voters and Maine Conservation Voters Education Fund. During Eliza's tenure, the conservation voters convened the Environmental Priorities Coalition, comprising two dozen diverse groups that agree to and advocate for a common legislative agenda. Eliza left the conservation voters when she joined the Maine Department of Conservation, where she served first as deputy commissioner and later as commissioner. She joined the Maine women's lobby in 2011. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I love hearing that you are a Maine, Maine, born and bred. You were born <laughs> in, well, you were born in Waterville, but officially, Skowhegan <laughs> is your hometown.
2: Right. Canaan, actually, which is. A small town outside of Skowhegan, <laughs> so it gets even
3: more and more specific. I yeah. love that. So why? Um, well, tell me a little bit about your path. I'm kind of interested in this. You've done a lot of really high level things for the state. So if you're from this little town of Canaan, how did how did this all happen? Uh,
2: a lot of it was um, sheer luck, I guess. I started out in working in the theater and came to Portland to be in the largest city and around the arts. Um, loved that burned out after a while, uh, and um, had settled in a neighborhood, began to get involved in neighborhood activist issues. One thing led to another, and then along came the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings, which really brought home to me uh, the importance of getting involved in issues that are important to you. So I ran for the legislature, and that has set me off on a path, I guess.
3: (laughs) That's interesting because the I mean, I vividly remember the Clarence Thomas hearings, but I'm guessing there's a whole, uh, I don't know, maybe a generation after that that really has
2: no idea
3: why this was important at all. Why was it important to you?
2: I think that it was the first time issues um, that women identified, or at least for me, it was the first time, I guess I can't speak for others. Uh, we've all, any woman has had, uh, a multitude of experiences that are um, that fit on a spectrum, not all of which are harassment or any kind of assault, but which leave you with a bad taste. And the uh, coming forward of Anita Hill, the fact that she was so uh, profoundly dismissed and ridiculed and so uh, abusively treated by members of the US Senate. It was um, a visceral and visible situation in which these uh, men who were in really elitist uh, issue, uh, situation of great power, were so obnoxiously rude, dismissive. um, It was just an appalling experience to watch. And I think I had individual conversations with friends and family for whom it was visceral it it just kind of brought up every negative experience you've ever had so if you weren't there to witness it it is hard to hard to know about but for anyone who was paying attention during the time it was i think just a really polarizing and for me it was, it was sort of lightning struck at that moment it was an aha moment for me
3: yeah you know that that's really true i think if i were to talk to my Twenty-year-old daughter who is interested in um, women's studies and um, and sort of the history of all of this and the cultural and community-related um, impact of gender relations. I don't. I think she would be surprised that something like that could have happened and not that very long ago. I mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. we really have. We still experience a lot of things that are frankly appalling. But, um, but there's, there has been an evolution over time, and maybe as a result of some of that happening.
2: I, I think it had a ripple effect that is still being felt. Um, thank goodness <laughs> there are some women in the U.S. Senate, not nearly enough. But what happened uh, during those hearings would not be acceptable today. I don't think it, the same thing could or would happen today.
3: So you have an interest in, obviously, in women's issues, but you also went in the direction of conservation. <laughs> so you're being hopefully protective of a variety of different groups, I would say. Why conservation?
2: Um, so as we mentioned, I grew up in the Skowhegan area in in rural central Maine. I was lucky enough to be dragged all over the north woods of Maine as a child to camp and hike, canoe. Uh, Being connected to Maine's outdoors is part of who I am, and it's very important to me that we take care of that aspect of Maine and take care that we don't become Anywhere USA, that we conserve the characteristics that make Maine different from other places. So, uh, I, again, I, having left uh, the legislature, moved along a path, I, I found myself, very, you know, so fortunate to be at the Department of Conservation, which was just a wonderful experience. Um, and the opportunity to, to work for the things that give me p- passion and pleasure and that uh, benefit others in the state was a wonderful, a wonderful way to work.
3: So tell me about your family then. It's interesting that you have this acting um, past (laughs) as well. And then you're telling me that you spend a lot of time being um, brought around the Northwoods. And then you also are highly aware of the Clarence Thomas um, hearings. So what what sort of fertile ground did you spring from, I guess?
2: <laughs> I, uh, my folks were always engaged in their community, whether uh, it was being involved in 4-H well before I was born to um, whatever issues. My father was very active in the early days of the Natural Resources Council of Maine. So it was common conversation at the dinner table to talk about Politics about issues about the legislature. My mother served on the board of the of the Skowhegan Public Library and used to take me along when I was four or five years old. So being active and t- taking action was an example set for me. Um, obviously, I didn't have a a clear plan that that was where I would end up. Um, the arts were something that. We enjoyed and I was exposed to and so that drew me strongly when I was young. I actually I did some acting but I also uh, I, my degree was in technical theater and so I did uh, I did scene design and lighting and props <laughs> and so forth.
3: And how has that contributed to what you do today? Is it something having to do with the organizational aspects or the constructive aspects? Or
2: I do think I sw- what I probably did more than anything in my uh, my as a young person working in the theater was props, and that's a, a problem solving. Um, challenge. So you're given very little time, maybe three weeks, to put a show together. You've got X amount of money to spend, um, limited resources. You have to be creative. You have to be really organized. Okay, what do we already have? What do I need to buy? What can I borrow? What can I rent? What are the solutions? And that those are skills that I use every single day in a very different way, whether it's in my personal life or in my professional life, but it taught me to be organized and creative and resourceful.
3: When I was doing some background research on the main Women's Lobby I was noticing a lot of things that have been supported by that organization over the years that are really quite mainstream. It's not as if it's all specific, it's a lot of women and children issues, but it's really family
2: issues was exactly. what I was seeing. Exactly. So what we like to say is that when women thrive, society thrives. Women are integral to the family, they are integral to our community, the uh, the lobby is a really interesting story. It um, it evolved from the 1977 International Year of the Woman, when a delegation of Maine women traveled to Houston, Texas, for the international or the national women's conference, came back excited, wanting to do something for women in Maine, and decided to secure funds for what were then called battered women's shelters. They lined up a sponsor for the legislation, testified, wrote letters, followed all the steps, and when the 1978 legislative session ended, there were zero dollars appropriated for battered women's shelters. So they went back to their allies and said, what happened here? And they were told, you weren't here. In the late, last-minute hours of the session, there was nobody in the halls speaking for women. They said, never again and formed the Maine Women's Lobby with two dollar memberships, <laughs> raised enough money to hire a lobbyist in, for the 1979 session, and when it had ended they had secured the funds. So we've been in the halls for 37 years on the front lines of a wide variety of issues affecting women. For example, Maine had a Family Medical Leave Act a full five years before the federal legislation passed it was the law in maine long long before the passage of the affordable care act that your insurer had to cover your mammogram and your pap smear um but you're right these issues go far beyond women to families and what we find ourselves really working on today is helping our elected leaders understand that economic security is the overarching issue for women that whether you have money and how you get money determine your health, they determine your ability to escape a violent relationship, your ability to chart your own life, and your children's prospects. So um, I feel very lucky to be working for this organization, especially at this time.
3: What has your observation been of women who grew up during the era of let's just say bra-burning, because that's, what we, <laughs> that's sort of what we all think of as women's rights. Um, and the younger women now, who are very aware, and even calling themselves feminists, but don't have that same historical perspective, have you noticed any differences in the way that they approach women's issues?
2: I'm really excited to work with the younger women I know today, who are just strike me as being incredibly smart and um, open-minded, wise, and yet are um, having to fight some of the most basic of issues. We're still having to debate the minimum wage, for example. As you know, Maine failed to adopt the federal accept the federal funds, which would allow us to ensure seventy thousand Mainers and create thousands of jobs in the process. So it. We, we've we come a long way in the sense that I think there's greater awareness, and at the same time we're fighting s- some of the most foundational fights.
3: I guess I ask this because I think of my own, you know, m- of our generation growing up and women were being admitted to educational institutions and we were being, um, we were to be found in the workplace and women could be doctors and lawyers and such. Um, And now I I think it's almost as if it's been forgotten that 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 was even ever an issue. So I I just, I I don't know. I don't know if I have a good question here or not, but my daughter and I have many conversations uh, about The perspective on that and what it really felt like to be someone who, you know, in my mother's era, you became a not a teacher or a nurse or you stayed at home with your kids. Essentially,
2: it's absolutely true that there are more opportunities today. Uh, Women are the majority of college students. Women are the majority of voters, and yet we have a presumed nominee for president who has said outrageously offensive things about women and whose clear attitude toward women is disdainful, Um, and we're seeing more and more erosion of women's ability to make their own decisions, reproductive decisions across the country, um, including now these challenges that are going to the Supreme Court, such as the case that was sent down to the lower courts yesterday, Zubik versus Burwell, which would allow your private employer to refuse to allow you to have access to certain kinds of birth control because they don't approve of it. That's just an absurd idea that 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 your boss should determine what types of birth control are available to you. So uh, while we make progress, we're also seeing very serious threats against women's autonomy and their ability to act as full adults in society.
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. What you're describing is is very real, and some of the things that I think that we, I think that as a society, we believed that we had quote-unquote solved. You're right, now there's a strange um, erosion, as you've described it. Why? What's happening?
2: Um, many of the issues, especially as we're seeing, that have to do with uh, abortion, reproductive issues, are really less about the stated issue than about power. They're about who gets to decide, who gets to make decisions. And I think that as women take a stronger role in society, there are some people who are threatened by that and find it frightening and are looking for ways to return to the social arrangement that was familiar to them and and from which they benefited.
3: Well, I'm sure that you're—I'm sure there's some truth to that, and yet I find it uh, vaguely horrifying, I guess. <laughs>
2: it should be vaguely horrifying. Or maybe just horrifying. Um, because if, if reproductive health care is health care, it's an outrageous thought that there would be women in the United States who would need to drive hundreds of miles to receive basic health care. It's, it's not acceptable.
3: Talk to me about sex trafficking. We had an individual on our show not too long ago who was describing sex tra- trafficking and the prostitution of young women, and I think it also happens with young men, but she happened to be female, within the state of Maine, which I think I was really I was really saddened by that this sort of thing continues to exist, and we haven't really figured out how to deal with that. Does the Maine Women's Lobby have any sort of a stance? I'm assuming you don't like it, but (laughs) do you have any sort of something that you're working on with this?
2: We um, work with the Maine Coalition Against Sexual Assault, who tends to take the lead. They are the experts in the field, and we have supported them in a variety of uh, legislative efforts to solve this issue. It's, you're right, I mean, it's horrifying. We would not like to believe that it's happening in Maine, and yet it is.
3: What are some of the things that the Maine Women's Lobby is currently working on that you feel very excited about?
2: We are just beginning to think about what we might work on for, as you know, the legislative session just ended for the year. So uh, I would say that we have um, a few things on our mind. One that is really current is the issue of the Supreme Court. Um, And that is only the tip of the iceberg of the overall issue around the courts. So what I mean is that, as you know, uh, Justice Scalia died earlier this year, and that has left us with a Supreme Court that is not fully staffed, with the result that they are unable to reach decisions on issues. As we saw yesterday, they remanded a a case down to the lower courts because they appeared to be split 4-4, that's just the tiniest example of issues that are taking place across the federal court system. Uh, President Obama has nominated, uh, I believe the current number is 57 judges to the federal courts, including Judge Garland, who he nominated to the Supreme Court, and um, there has been no action on them in the U.S. Senate. The old saying is, justice delayed is justice denied. The result is that Americans are unable to get their day in court, including across the country there are a number of jurisdictions where the caseload is so high as to be declared a judicial emergency. As you know, the federal courts touch every aspect of our lives, and obviously we think of Roe v. Wade, we think of reproductive issues, but the decisions that upheld the Affordable Care Act um, would be another example. So they're profoundly important to every aspect of our lives and, and including environmental and conservation issues. We're watching that closely and trying to teach everyone, let everyone know that these, this is what's happening because it's, why would you know, it's a little bit arcane, um, but incredibly important. And furthermore, there are uh, the average age of retirement for justices on the Supreme Court has been 79. There are three justices who are either 78 and a half or older. And so if Justice Garland is not confirmed prior to the election, our next president could nominate as many as four Supreme Court justices. That's a big deal. That's... That's a very, very big deal. So that's top of mind. We're also looking ahead to the next legislative session, and we're beginning to talk with our partners about creating a system of paid family leave. Uh, People of all stripes, uh, but particularly women, find themselves trying to balance their responsibilities both at work and at home. And we see this when we're younger, when we have kids, and uh, as you know, our country is the only developed country that does not have any sort of paid maternity leave. Um, at the other end of, our, of the spectrum, many of us are dealing with aging parents, and it is often uh, false to, to daughters to play that role. And so creating a system where people can afford to take some time off to care for the people they love makes a lot of sense to us it it doesn't have to be um this isn't a radical thought it has passed in california new jersey rhode island and now new york so we see this as a very reasonable step that would allow people to continue to take care of their family members especially in a state where we are the oldest state in the nation um so that that's one of the things we're looking ahead on.
3: And something like that, how would that get funded? Who would pay for employees to take that time? Would it, that be government? Would it, that be In employers? New York it was a
2: it's divided just as unemployment is with a small contribution by both the employee and the employer, a paycheck deduction. We've already created this system with unemployment. It works well. Um so that's the model.
3: So you've been doing this work with the Maine Women's Lobby since 2011, and you've done a variety of work in conservation and working with the Maine House of Representatives. Um, What continues to get you up out of bed every day? What is it that you feel (laughs) most passionate about in your own personal and professional life?
2: Um, You can't be in this field unless you're an optimist. And I have had enough success to know that the work that we do matters and that you can achieve success. Um, so that, that in itself is, um, a driver, I guess, (laughs) knowing that we're making a difference in people's lives, even if they don't know who we are, um, is satisfying.
3: Well, I've enjoyed hearing about the work that you've done, um, really from, I guess, the very earliest of your years, especially, <laughs> and the work that your parents, it sounds like, did within <laughs> your own community. Um, how can people find out about what's going on with the Maine Women's Lobby?
2: Our website is a great source of information. It is mainwomen.org. We're also known for our social media. So while you're there, you can sign up for our e-newsletters, as well as our Facebook page. Those would be three great strategies.
3: And I'm assuming that you do not need to be a a female in order to... No, we have
2: uh, many friends, allies, (laughs) supporters who are not female.
3: (laughs) Well, very good. I appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk with me today. We've been speaking with Eliza Townsend, who is the executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. Thanks so much for the work that you're doing. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having
3: me. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 250, Inspirational Mainers. Our guests have included Don Gooding and Eliza Townsend. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Read about Don Gooding and Eliza Townsend in the July issue of Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our inspirational Mainers show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wassett. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's an excerpt from our interview with Elizabeth Drucker from next week's program.
3: But why ballet? You know, you're nine and ten years mm, old, and yeah. there's something about that particular form of dance. It's so
4: specific. It is very specific, and I think it attracts a specific type of person. Um, I think it's, it demands a lot of, phys- it surprises you sometimes to see how much physical uh, strength it demands, so I think it does attract a person who tends to be athletic um, and and like to to Push their bodies in in different ways, uh, but I think it also really attracts a person who likes details and and is excited by little progressions. Uh, the students who, for instance, Aaron's daughter Elizabeth, um, she's now at that age where she she comes a couple of times a week, and her class this year just just really just came together in terms of loving those little details so we can spend um, you know all this time in class focusing on uh, the 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 uh, intense um, classicism of ballet and, and that's not for everybody uh, but when you get a group that that loves that um, y- there's just no stopping them I feel so uh, I think there's also a tremendous love of music. Um, if you're if you love ballet, uh, because it's such such a pivotal part. Um, and but I'm surprised also how uh, how many students really do find something to love in it, um, because you're right. It is a a very specific kind of training. It seems as though
3: m- many parents are interested in having their children um, do ballet, but that at some point it has to really be about the child, him or herself. Yes what is that what is that pivot point? What do you see in kids who make the decision to move forward
4: themselves? That's a good question. I think uh, I think that they start to feel um, how much success, they have in the studio, and by success, I mean that for them, uh, finding achievement in um, in those small changes because it's a small progression. It's not like you walk in one day and then the next day you're doing, um, you know, triple pirouettes and you've got your split. And it's such a small, slow progression. Uh, but they start to that that aha moment that I think I see in my students is. Um, when they've been working at something for a period of time, and it might be something small, like, you know, holding their arm at a certain level, and then they just, they, they get it. They get it that day, it, and you see their, this light go on behind their eyes, this smile, even the shy students who, uh, you know, their, their smile is sort of uh, repressed a little bit, but they can't, they can't um, keep it contained uh, because they've, they've worked at something and they've seen the achievement in it. Um, and it, that's so rewarding and so that's that's what I try to find uh, for my students and um, that's why I think the ballet is something that everybody can be successful in um, if you look at the standards of success being uh, broad being about um, about little details as well as big details You described a a
3: point in your own career where you went from performance Mm -hmm. to studio Mm -hmm. and to teaching. Yeah. Explain to me the differences between someone who might go in one direction versus another direction.
4: I think you have to... One thing that I saw in my fellow performers that I didn't see in myself is that we'd be backstage getting ready for a performance and they were brimming with excitement. They were like, oh, I can't wait to get, I can't wait to get on stage tonight. Um, yeah, I have to go to class tomorrow the next day and the rehearsals, but it's just to get on stage. But that was the reward for them and that was really enjoyable for them. Um, for me that was a little bit more of the, uh, that was the hardest part in the day for me. Um, whereas that time in the studio where there's so much discovery, uh, so many opportunities to try something new in the studio and see how it worked. Um, and I think that you can get that way on stage for sure. Uh, I think that there were factors that um, stood in my way a little bit and some of it was um, being healthy, being uh, physically and mentally healthy to have the confidence to uh, to take those sort of risks on stage uh, that I felt I could, I could in the classroom. I think the dancers that are so successful performing really find a balance in their life that they can uh, handle the stress of performing, uh, but that they, but that the love of being on stage uh, really uh, pushes them through, helps them. Um, and so I see that in, in both, um, in in my students, I have some students who, they get through their classwork during the year so that they can be rewarded at the end of the year with a, with a spring production. Uh, and then there's others who, I think, would be happy being in class every day and, and not ever having to step on stage. Uh, and, and you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, in a smaller school like mine, we're trying to find, um, trying to find that balance for, for all students, because it, it is different um, for each of them. It,
3: it seems to me as a parent that we've evolved into a very performance-centric world. Yes. And that it's not even just the spring performance of, say, a ballet. It's also the sort of daily on stage of Instagram or social yes. media. And so there's always the sense that you have to have your game face on.
4: You're absolutely right.
3: So how do you step back from that and encourage this joy that you're describing mm-hmm. in just your own... Small accomplishments.
4: Mm-hmm. I think I'm very lucky in that the the older students in the school uh, sort of th- it trickles down their their beliefs and their philosophy and their work ethics trickle down to their uh, to the younger students, um, and I think the older students really understand that that everything really happens in the classroom. Um, and it also happens outside the classroom, the work they do at home, the 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 time that they put into uh, thinking about about class. But um, so when you see that modeled for you every day, I think that, and then, and then for the parents to also see that these older dancers are doing really well. They they can see the product on stage every year, but they also see that these older dancers are um, gaining recognition elsewhere. They audition for summer programs throughout the country and, and are accepted. So they see that that uh... that the course of ballet in particular uh... more so in ballet than some other forms of dance um, really is a classroom based uh... based activity um... and so i think that helps um, i don't know if that answered your question but uh... I, I think it's it's sort of building that culture within the school um that that w- that the value uh, happens every single day, uh, and then we also get to see that and celebrate
0: that. Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.